Coming up right now is the Space Show. K-E-W-N-E-T-Y-O, he's a wonderful guy, a fearless pioneer. He'll head the new frontier. K-E-W-N-E-T-Y, he'll work and never say die. He'll fight for what is fair, for people everywhere. Politically motivated song was written by John Redmond, capturing the spirit of outer space as a new frontier. And that was by the pioneers of the new frontier. Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. And our show tonight is dedicated to John Kennedy. Now, pretty much everyone who is 70 years or older remembers what they were doing on this day 60 years ago. It was on 1963, November the 22nd, that United States President John Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. For many people, Kennedy's memory is tied to the Apollo moon landings. After all, we have often heard parts of a speech to Congress on 1961, May the 25th. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Now, Kennedy did not start the Apollo project. It was already underway during the Eisenhower administration. But Kennedy and Johnson's advocacy enlarged and sped up the project. The genesis of Apollo is not our story on this evening's The Space Show. Rather, it is the state of the United States space program in the final year of Kennedy's life. The years of 1961, 1962 and 1963 were years of intense rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. 
Achievements in space were considered to send signals to the rest of the world of the supremacy of the communist and capitalist systems. During Kennedy's presidency, the first astronauts were launched. He never lost an opportunity to appear with the astronauts of the Mercury program. Mercury was a one-man spacecraft. The final mission, Mercury Atlas 9, was flown by Gordon Cooper. Launched on 1963, May 15th, Cooper orbited the Earth 22 times in 34 hours and splashed down in the Pacific Ocean to be recovered by the United States ship Kearsarge. Well, via shortwave radio, Kennedy was quick to grab the limelight. The President's telephone conversation with Major Gordon Cooper aboard the USS Kearsarge immediately after the recovery of the Faith 7 from the President's office in the White House, May 16, 1963. Hello, Major Cooper. Yes, sir. Uh, can you hear the President? Yes, sir. All right. Oh, Major. I just want to congratulate you. That was a great flight. Well, thank you very much, sir. We talked to your wife, and she seemed to uh, stand it very well. Oh, very good. And we hope we're looking forward to seeing you up here Monday, but we're very proud of you, Major. Oh, thank you, sir. It was yep. a good flight. I enjoyed it. Oh, good. Fine. Well, I look forward to seeing you Monday. Good luck. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Major. And then Kennedy got on the radio to talk about Gordon Cooper. The President's TV address to the nation and the successful 22-orbit flight of Major Gordon Cooper from the fish room of the White House, May 16, 1963. Fellow Americans, uh, I've just talked to Major Cooper in the Pacific, Mrs. Cooper in Houston, Texas. We are proud of both of them, and indeed we take the greatest satisfaction as Americans in this extraordinary feat, which has pushed the experience of man a good deal further in many ways than it has been. We're proud of Major Cooper, and we're proud of all those thousands of Americans who work with him to make this flight possible. And indeed, in a sense, uh, all Americans were on this flight, because all of them have sustained this program in good times and in bad. And it represents a great achievement for our society and a great achievement uh, for free men and women. Peace has their victories as well as war, and this was one of the victories for the human spirit today. And no sooner was Cooper back in the United States than he and his family were flown to Washington to meet Kennedy. The President's remarks upon presenting the NASA Distinguished Service Medal to Major L. Gordon Cooper from the Rose Garden of the White House, May 21, 1963. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to ask Mr. Webb and the Vice President to give some decorations to those who participated, not in the capsule with Major Cooper, but who helped make the flight possible. Mr. Webb, who's the director of the space program. First, uh, perhaps we could have all the uh, people here who have uh, flown in space to come down here. Amanda Shepard, Mr. Carpenter, some of the others, would you all come down and join us? This is a very small, exclusive group. We're delighted to welcome them and their wives, 
John Glenn is uh, visiting Japan, but uh, I know he's uh, with us in spirit. We've had a number of these ceremonies at the White House and at Cape Canaveral to pay tribute to a very distinguished uh, group of Americans who have in our time, in this rather settled society, demonstrated that there are uh, great frontiers still to be crossed and in flying through space have carried with them the wishes, the prayers, the hopes and the pride of 180 million of their fellow countrymen. We're delighted to honor today the most recent of this uh, very exclusive group, Major Cooper, who uh, went furthest in space and did so on the anniversary of Charles Lindbergh's flight to Paris. Charles Lindbergh took approximately the same time to go about one 150th of the distance of Major Cooper. Both flights were equally hazardous, both were equally daring. I think uh, one of the things which uh, warmed us the most during this flight was the realization that however extraordinary computers may be, that we are still ahead of them and that man is still the most extraordinary computer of all. His judgment, his nerve, and uh, the lessons he can learn from experience still make him unique and therefore make man flight necessary and not merely that uh, of uh, satellites. I hope that uh, we will be encouraged to continue with this program. I know that a good many people say, uh, why go to the moon? Just as many people said to Lindbergh, why go to Paris? Lindbergh said, it's not so matter of matter of logic as it is a feeling. I think that uh, the United States has committed itself to this great adventure in the 60s. I think before the end of the 60s, we will see a man in the moon, to the moon, an American. And I think in so doing, it's not merely that we're interested in making this particular journey, but we are interested in demonstrating a dominance of this new sea and making sure that in this new great adventurous period that the Americans are playing their great role as they have in the past. Most of all, we're very proud uh, of Major Cooper and his family, and we're very proud that our country continues to produce uh, these uh, young men who go so far uh, and uh, carry with them so much. So, Major, we're glad to welcome you and your mother here and your wife, your two children, and to tell you that uh, you've given the United States a, a great day and a great lift. Citation says his outstanding flight demonstrated man's ability to conduct engineering and scientific investigations in orbital space flight and added significantly to man's knowledge of space technology. That's a very technical way of uh, saying it, but uh, it says, says all we want to say. Thank you very much. The Redstone Arsenal is the home of the Marshall Space Flight Center, where Von Braun's team developed the Saturn series of rockets. On May the 18th of 1963, President Kennedy visited the Redstone Arsenal. The President's remarks upon departure from the Redstone Arsenal Airport, Huntsville, Alabama. May 18, 1963. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Senator Sparkman, Governor Wallace, Senator Hill, Congressman Elliott, Senator Kefauver, Chairman Wagner of the TVA, 
Bob Jones, Congressman Jones, Congressman Albert Raines, Dr. Von Braun, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. I want to express a very uh, warm sense of appreciation to you for coming out and joining us. We flew this morning from uh, Washington to Nashville in about an hour and 45 minutes. 100 years ago or so, 130 years ago, it took Andrew Jackson 30 days to go from uh, Washington, D.C., the White House, to his house at the Hermitage in Nashville. I don't know whether the world is better off than it was uh, then, but at least uh, we move around more. Whether we accomplish much is going to depend uh, on the judgment of other generations. But I will say, as we move faster, there's no place in the world in this decade that is going to play a more significant role in that motion than this community right here in the center of Alabama. I wonder uh, how many of the people here, now that we've all been introduced, can, uh, we'd like to know something more about you. How many of you here are either in the armed forces of the United States, the wife of a member of the armed forces of the United States, or the child of a member of the United States? Could you hold up your hands? Well, you have just convinced Senator Sparkman and Senator Hill to vote for that pay raise, and I'm glad we all uh, came down here. And then, <laughs> and then I wonder how many of you work uh, in one way or another for the space agency? Would you hold up your hands? And then I wonder how many of you are taxpayers that are supporting all the rest of us? <laughs> <laughs> and what about, the, what about the arsenal? All right, well, in any case, uh, all of us, whether we're doing one thing or the other, whether we're in Huntsville, Washington, D.C., wherever we may be, all of us are committed to a great objective, and that is to see the United States of America, in which we're proud, not only meet its responsibilities here at home, not only provide a better life for its people, but also continue to be, as it has since 1945, the keystone of the arch of freedom all around the world. There are 11,000 Americans serving today and defending the freedom of Vietnam. And they stretch either in service themselves or by the guarantees which are maintained by the armed forces of the United States. They maintain the freedom of countries stretching all the way around from South Korea in a great half circle to Berlin. Without the United States, there are literally dozens of countries that would not now be free. And with the United States and with our determination, and with our strong look forward, not only shall they be free, but also the people who come after them. And I know there are lots of people now who say, why go any further in space? When Columbus was halfway through his voyage, the same people said, why go on any further? What will we possibly find? What good will it be? And they want to stop now. I believe the United States of America is committed in this decade to be first in space. And the only way we're going to be first in space is to work as hard as we can here and all across the country and support not only Major Cooper, but all those who come after him. So gentlemen, ladies, we depend on you. Either you and the armed forces of the United States 
who helped defend the freedom, even here, of countries thousands of miles away, you who are building these missiles, which not only raise an American into space, but raise the prestige and reputation of this country. So I'm proud to be here. And I leave this valley, this state, this region, which I left only a few hours ago, realizing once again what a strong, great country we are, what a strong, great people we are, and we're all determined to keep it so. Thank you. In public, Kennedy was a strong advocate for the space program. On 1962, November the 21st, in conversation with NASA Administrator James Webb, he had admitted that despite the public perception, he was not all that interested in space. That was an extract from a one-hour conversation that Kennedy secretly recorded in the White House. Unlike the Nixon tapes, which were automatically activated, Kennedy's tape was selectively activated by himself. Now, unfortunately, the surreptitious positioning of the microphone meant that most of the recordings are either unintelligible or barely so. Foy Kola was the United States ambassador to the Soviet Union from 1962 September to 1966 November. During this time, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred and the hotline between Washington and Moscow was established. In September of 1963, Kola reported to Kennedy the gist of a conversation with Soviet Minister of Foreign Affairs about possible cooperation in space. Now, this space show reading from the meeting transcript, the original being quite unintelligible. The other thing I talked to him about was space. I don't know whether we could ever... They were very intrigued by this, Mr. President. I mentioned this when I talked to Gromyko before I left and it was obvious that they were intrigued but a little puzzled by this. I referred to it as a very imagining thing and asked whether they had given any thought to it. He said, well, they agreed it was imaginative. They're obviously interested in this, by implication, they are clearly concerned about the cost of these damn things, about a race in space. So Gromyko said, well, it's a very interesting idea and we would like you to come up with something more definite which we can take a look at. So far, I haven't been able to consult with all the right people here to see whether anything can be developed. I would like to have an agreement on when we both try to go to the moon. Then we wouldn't have this intensive race I don't know whether they are going to the moon. Lovell says not. I think maybe he's right. 
They have got, you think you have a serious resource distribution problem but believe me, Mr. Khrushchev has a more serious one. The pressure of the claims on a very limited budget must be enormous there and he does refer to it occasionally. Well my military people say one more, my scientists are always waning more, the pressures must be great when resources are very limited. Now, during 1961 and 1962, Kennedy was gung-ho for the Apollo moon landings. NASA Administrator James Webb was not so keen, as he wasn't convinced a landing could be made by the end of the decade. One year on, by September of 1963, the roles were reversed. It was now Kennedy who needed assurance from Webb. Consider the evidence from the secret White House tapes recorded on the 18th of September. Now what I shall do is play our space show reading from the transcript and then the actual audio of the same. The American accent voice is for Kennedy and the Australian voice is for Webb. Now, Kennedy and Webb both recognise that there is a problem funding Apollo and selling the project politically. What do you think of the general analysis of our problem? I think we're in good shape in every way except in the political front, which is partly exacerbated by the desire to cut the budget and the problem with the military. I think we've got a good program you're going to be proud of and I think it's going to generate the technology that is going to make a great difference in the future of this country, far beyond space. And now let's listen to the actual tape. What do you think of the, uh, the, uh, the general analysis of our problem? I think we are in good shape every way except in the political part, which is partly exacerbated by the, by the desire to cut the budget and uh, the And Webb goes on to assure Kennedy that space inspires school children everywhere. This thing attracts the public more than you think. I've been in 17 states with high school students in places where you have had a whole high school full of people. What's unfortunate would be, ah, as I say, maybe the Russians will have this thing but we don't have anything coming up now for the next 14 months. So I'm going into the campaign to defend this program. We won't have had anything for a year and a half. Kennedy is concerned that budget cuts would delay the moon landing to well beyond his second presidential term, if he were elected in 1984. Now, if that happened, it would be another president who would bask in the glory. At that time, there were optimistic projections that the landing could happen as early as 1967, if funding was allocated. At least then, Kennedy would see a lunar flyby while president. If we're cut by that amount to 5 billion, 150, 
We're going to, say, slip, a year. We will slip at least a year, which means that if we run into any serious trouble where we don't want to be thinking about If I get re-elected, I'm not, we're not, go to the moon in my, in our period are we? Ah, uh, no, you're not going. We're not going, yeah. You'll fly by it probably. I'm not going personally, but it won't be done while we're- No, no. We'll have work to fly by though while you're president but it's just going to take longer than that. This is a tough job, a real tough job. But I will tell you what will be accomplished while we're president and it will be one of the most important things that's been done in this nation. A basic need to use technology for total national power. That's going to come out of this space program more than any single thing. What's that again? A basic ability in this nation to use science and very advanced technologies to increase national power, our economy all the way through. Do you think the lunar, the manned landing on the moon is a good idea? Yes sir, I do. Why? Because. Could you do the same with instruments much cheaper? No sir, you can't do the same. You're listening to The Space Show. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. The reason the Soviet Union was able to notch up some of the early firsts of the space race was because it had larger rockets than the United States. Now, NASA Administrator James Webb points out that the Apollo project gave the impetus to build large boosters, the Saturn C-1 and the soon-to-be-built Saturn C-5. The lunar landing gave us the impetus to build big boosters and to tailor them specifically for the purpose, therefore they're going to succeed otherwise they would not have succeeded or been efficient. The second reason is that in understanding the forces of nature and applying them right here on Earth and using them for national power, you've got to have, sometime, a proof of the theory of how the universe was formed and how it applies back on the scientific concepts. You've got to prove or disprove. The moon is the first place you can do that. It would either fall hot or cold and it has different structure, in either case and you need to know that. Gave us the impetus to build big boosters 
and to tailor them specifically for the purpose. Therefore, they're going to succeed, otherwise they would not have succeeded or been efficient. The second reason is that uh, in understanding the forces of nature uh, and applying them right here on Earth and using them for national power, you've got to have sometime a proof of the theory of how the universe was formed and how it applies back on the scientific concepts. You've got to prove or disprove. The moon is the first place you can do that. It was either formed hot or cold, and it has a different structure in either case, and you need to know that. Webb assured Kennedy that he won't regret supporting space exploration. While you're president, this is going to come true in this country. So you're going to have both science and technology appreciating your leadership in this field. Without a doubt in my mind. And the young of course see this much better than in my generation. The high school seniors and the college freshmen are 100% for man looking at three times what he's never looked at before. He's looking at the material of the earth, the characteristics of gravity and magnetism and is looked at life on earth. And he understands the universe just looking at those three things. Alright, maybe he's gonna have material from the Moon and Mars, he's going to have already a measurement from Venus about its gravity and its magnetic fields. And if we find some life out beyond Earth, these are going to be finite things in terms of the development of the human intellect. And I predict you are not going to be sorry, no sir, that you did this. In their 1963 September the 18th conversation, Webb runs some cost figures before Kennedy and urges the president to face up to what will be needed to make the lunar landing in the decade of the 1960s. We're stronger. We can do this job within the 28 billion plus the 15 in this 10-year period, but we've got to have enough level of support in 64 and 65 to get over the hump and then the expenditures will drop. Now suppose then we don't get that, suppose we have to drop back a few hundred million in both years, we still would have it a few hundred million below that, a fighting chance to do it, but not much more than a fighting chance. To do what? to make the lunar landing within this decade. Is that right? Yeah. If they cut this budget this year and next year, we'd have a fighting chance. I'm trying to get this clearly in your mind, because you have to say something about this. We are stronger. We can do this job within the 20 billion plus the 15 in this 10 year period. But we've got to have enough level of support in 50, in 64 and 65 to get over the pump and then the expenditures will drop. 
Now, suppose we don't get that. Suppose we have to drop back a few hundred million in both years. We still would have, at a few hundred million below that, a fighting chance to do it, but not much more than a fighting chance to do what? To make the lunar landing within the decade. Is that right? Yeah. If they cut this budget this year and next year. We'd have a fighting chance. Now, I'm trying to get this clearly in your mind because you'll have to think something about it there. And Webb worries that the Republicans and the public doesn't feel strongly about the Apollo moon project. Now, whether you want to start right now, belaboring the Republicans, which I don't think you do, saying it may be, it's impossible to do this job in this decade. And that is a real political issue in 64. I'm not at all sure that you want to do that because I'm not sure that the country feels that strongly about this program right now. Uh, now, whether you want to start right now belaboring the Republicans, which I don't think you do, is saying they made it impossible to do this job in this decade. And have it is a real political issue in 64. I, I'm not at all sure that you want to do that because I'm not sure that the country feels that strongly about this program right now. At the time of this conversation, the One Man Mercury Project had just ended and work was underway on the two-man Gemini and three-man Apollo. Unmanned Gemini test flights were scheduled for the following year, but the first manned mission would not be attempted until 1965. And this would be after the 1964 presidential election, so unable to boost Kennedy's election chances. Webb, however, had his eyes set further ahead when there would be an Apollo applications space station. Well, you see, we have in the Gemini and Apollo spacecraft that will fly men for long periods of time under zero-g conditions and what we really need to know beyond that is what we could learn by putting a small centrifuge in a space station so that you could go from zero-g up to one-tenth, two-tenths on up to one-g maybe to two-gs. But at least we would be closing the gap as to what happens if zero-g is something men can't tolerate in space. Uh, you see, we have in the Gemini and the Apollo spacecraft that will fly men for long periods of time under zero-g conditions. And what we really need to know beyond that is what we could learn by putting a small centrifuge in the space station so that you could go from zero-g up to one-tenth, two-tenths, on up to one-g, maybe to two-g. But at least we would be closing this gap as to what happens if zero-g is something men can't tolerate in space. Kennedy saw the rivalry with the Soviets as a selling point for Apollo. He saw that a dramatic new achievement by the Soviets could get more money from Congress. At the same time, he was wondering whether unmanned exploration of the moon would be better value for money. And NASA was created by President Eisenhower as a civilian organization and specifically excluded it from military work. Well, Kennedy wonders whether giving Apollo a military objective might unlock the purse strings of Congress. Well, I talked to the other day, about two weeks ago, to McNamara and Gilpatrick for a few minutes and said that I thought the space program, looking ahead, unless the Russians did something dramatic and we don't have anything dramatic coming up for the next 12 months, so it's going to be an attack on the budget. 
but this looks like a hell of a lot of dough to go to the moon when you can go. You can learn most of that you want scientifically through instruments and putting a man on the moon really is a stunt and it isn't worth that many billions. Therefore the heat's going to go on unless we can say this has got some military justification and not just prestige. Otherwise Eisenhower is going to be kicking us around and we're going to look like he's probably right. They don't want to spend that kind of dough. Why should we spend that kind of dough to put a man on the moon? So when I got up to uh, the other day, uh, about two weeks ago, to uh, just back in there and look past it for a few minutes, and said that I thought the space program that he had said, unless the Russians did something dramatic, and we don't have anything dramatic coming up in the next uh, 12 months, that it's going to be uh, the, the attack on the budget, that this looks like a hell of a lot of dough to go to the moon when you can go, you can learn most of what you want scientifically through instruments and putting a man on the moon really is a stunt and it isn't worth that many billions and therefore the heat's going to go on unless we can say that this has got some military justification and not just prestige otherwise Eisenhower has been carrying us around and he's going to look like he's probably right they don't want to spend that kind of dough why should we spend that kind of dough to put a man on the moon Later in the conversation, Kennedy returns to the idea of militarizing Apollo to justify the billions of dollars. Remember, dear listener, that this was at a time when even a millionaire was quite a rarity. That is, unlike today, when pretty much everyone who owns a house or a flat is a millionaire. Well, Kennedy is well aware that the next year is an election year. But it seems to me what we've got to try and do is for the reasons you suggested. We've got to wrap around in this country a military use for what we're doing and spending in space. If we don't, it does look like a stunt and too much money. Some people, Christ, we can't get money for some, and all the rest and people saying we're spending billions in going to the moon. If we can show that that's true, but there's also a very significant military use. Now, how are we going to do that? What I would say, I think it's the only way we're going to be able to defend it before the public in the next 12 months. We're not going to have anything spectacular ourselves, and if the Russians don't have any, it's going to be open season next year. Although Kennedy recognized the value to national prestige of a moon landing, he still thought national security would be a better selling point. But I'd like to see what we could do to get the military. You said they're holding out, but we can, we can give this thing a military slant. In the final, 
we can justify the military or national security route much better than we can justify the prestige these days. Okay, but I'd like to see what we can do to get the military, uh, you say they're holding out, but I mean, we, can, we can give this thing a military slap. And the final thing is, we can justify a military and national security route much better than we can justify the prestige these days. After discussing other issues, Webb again refers to 1964 as an election year and whether Apollo should be led by a military man rather than a civilian. Would you be better off thinking about 64 in the political year if you just took a military man and put him in charge of this program? That is a way. I don't think that what we ought to do now, but I am concerned that I have a... I think this can be an asset, this program. I think in time, it's like a lot of things. This is mid-journey and therefore everybody says, what the hell are we making this trip for? But at the end of the thing they may be glad we made it. But we've got to defend ourselves now and I think that at least it's occurred to me that unless the Russians do something spectacular, the only way we can defend ourselves is if we put a national security rather than a prestige label on this. Apollo remained under civilian control and President Johnson secured the continued funding of Apollo. Now, near the end of their 1963 September the 18th conversation, Kennedy and NASA Administrator Webb discussed the public image of the space program. Now what image do you want to present beyond this military image of military under this program? Obviously you want to present, ah like the thing you said, the kind of improvements in our national life which will come from this, the leadership of the United States and the national security we'll get from it, all those factors. The only thing that isn't today, particularly a plus, in I think surveys a year ago our space program was a much bigger political. Now it's not as much because this happens to be, as I said, a still period in it. The difficulty is that I'm not sure how much, right now, I don't think the space program has much political positives. I agree, I think this is a real problem. I mean if the Russians do some tremendous feat, then it would stimulate interest again, but right now space has lost a lot of its glamour. Well that's why I want to talk to you because I think there is some strategy issues relating to the election in 64 that we've got to face. 88.3 Southern FM on the space show this evening, we are marking the 60th anniversary of the murder or assassination of President Kennedy. Well, two days after the discussion with Webb, on September the 20th, Kennedy was in New York to deliver a speech to the United Nations. In it, he made a proposal for a joint lunar program with the 
Soviet Union. The President's speech to the United Nations General Assembly in New York City, September 20th, 1963. Mr. President, as one who has taken some interest in the election of presidents, I want to congratulate you on your election to this high office. Mr. Secretary General, delegates to the United Nations, ladies and gentlemen, we meet again in the quest for peace. 24 months ago, when I last had the honor of addressing this body, the shadow of fear lay darkly across the world. Those were anxious days for mankind. Today, the clouds have lifted a little so that new rays of hope can break through. We have, in recent years, agreed on a limited test ban treaty on cooperation in outer space. We must continue to seek agreement. Encouraged by yesterday's affirmative response to this proposal by the Soviet foreign minister on an arrangement to keep weapons of mass destruction out of outer space, let us get our negotiators back to the negotiating table to work out a practicable arrangement to this end. Finally, in a field where the United States and the Soviet Union have a special capacity in the field of space, there is room for new cooperation, for further joint efforts in the regulation and exploration of space. I include among these possibilities a joint expedition to the moon. Space offers no problems of sovereignty. By resolution of this assembly, the members of the United Nations have forsworn any claim to territorial rights in outer space or on celestial bodies and declared that international law and the United Nations Charter will apply. Why, therefore, should man's first flight to the moon be a matter of national competition? Why should the United States and the Soviet Union, in preparing for such expeditions, become involved in immense duplications of research, construction, and expenditure. Surely we should explore whether the scientists and astronauts of our two countries, indeed of all the world, cannot work together in the conquest of space. Sending some day in this decade to the moon, not the representatives of a single nation, but the representatives of all of our countries. All these and other new steps towards peaceful cooperation may be possible. Most of them will require on our part full consultation with our allies, for their interests are as much involved as our own, and we will not make an agreement at their expense. Most of them will require long and careful negotiation. A global system of satellites could provide communication and weather information for all corners of the earth. This proposal was not enthusiastically received by the Soviet leader Khrushchev. Kennedy's death only a little more than a month later essentially made the proposal irrelevant. Now discussion of a joint moon mission with the Soviets died out in the early months of the Johnson administration. And one can only speculate on what might have happened had Kennedy survived his visit 
to Dallas. For example, here is Kennedy in discussion with Secretary of State Dean Rusk on 1963, October the 4th. They are discussing possible sharing of space information with the Soviet Union. The seven Mercury astronauts were the celebrities of the early 1960s, and Kennedy was careful to ensure some of the stardust rubbed off on himself. Here he is presenting the Collier Trophy to the Mercury astronauts on 1963, October the 10th. Remarks of the President upon presenting the 1963 Collier Trophy to the original team of seven astronauts from the Rose Garden of the White House, October 10th, 1963. Sir, Mr. Vice President, uh, gentlemen, I want to express a very warm welcome back to the White House, where all these gentlemen have come on other occasions. And I'm particularly glad that uh, the decision has made, been made to award the trophy uh, this year to them. I think it honors an extraordinary page in American history, as well as in the history of flight, and uh, I hope that uh, this award, which in a sense closes out this particular phase of the space program, will be a stimulus to uh, them and to other astronauts who will carry our flag uh, to the moon and uh, perhaps even someday uh, beyond. I want to express my appreciation to the armed forces of the United States who have supported this effort who uh, provided these young men, Mr. Webb, who directed uh, the space program, and to the officers, some of whom are here, of this immediate project, who were responsible for its ultimate success. Most of all, I want to express our appreciation to 
the astronauts who have become a part of the American story in a very real way and to their wives who are also here. I imagine that uh, someday we'll be uh, welcoming them back, one, two or three of them anyway, who have gone uh, a good deal further than they've now gone. And I hope we're all here to participate in that. I wonder if Mr. Webb might say a word about the this award, more especially about the significance of this great effort in space. I just want to uh, say uh, one more word while we've got an audience, and that is uh, about this uh, space program. When the plane uh, was first invented, I'm sure there are a good many who wondered what possible use it could be. When the first Sputnik went up, uh, satellite, uh, I'm sure it was regarded as a, an extraordinary feat, but not of perhaps of great national, international significance. I can assure you that it's had the most extraordinary influence on our lives, been uh, useful beyond measure to the United States, and I feel that way about what we're trying to do now. It may, uh, to some who maybe only dimly perceive where we're going and what it's going to mean, they may not uh, feel that uh, this is of the greatest priority to our country. I'm confident that uh, when this job is done of giving the United States the kind of position in this area, which it must have, that it will then become as obvious to us, its significance is obvious to us, its use is obvious to us, its benefit is obvious to us as a country, as the Sputnik, the satellite is to us, as the airplane is to us. And I think that uh, in the course of that, uh, we'll have particular appreciation to the Americans who are here today who uh, led this effort. So it's a great pleasure I present to them this celebrated award. The following months, Kennedy embarked on his fatal trip to Texas. Most of what happened during those three days was covered on our Space Show special documentary broadcast here on Southern FM's The Space Show on 2013, November the 20th. At that time, most of the speeches Kennedy made in Texas were not available, so we had them read by Southern FM actors John Gilbertson and Tim Watson. To them, we are eternally grateful. Since 2013, other speeches have been published by the Kennedy Library. The day before he died, Kennedy visited the Aerospace Medical Health Center in San Antonio. The President's remarks at the dedication of the Aerospace Medical Health Center from Brooks Air Force Base, Texas, November 21, 1963. Thank you. Mr. Secretary, Governor, Mr. Vice President, Senator, members of the Congress, members of the military, ladies and gentlemen, more than three years I've spoken about uh, the new frontier. This is not a partisan term and it's not the exclusive property of Republicans or Democrats. It refers instead to this nation's place in history, to the fact that we do stand on the edge of a great new era filled with both crisis and opportunity, an era to be characterized by achievement and by challenge. It is an area which calls for action and for the best efforts of all those who would test the unknown and the uncertain in every phase of human endeavor, 
It is a time for pathfinders and pioneers. I have come to Texas today to salute an outstanding group of pioneers. The man who manned the Brooks Air Force Base School of Aerospace Medicine and the Aerospace Medical Center. It is fitting that San Antonio should be the site of this center and this school as we gather to dedicate this complex of buildings. For this city has long been the home of the pioneers in the air. It was here that Sidney Brooks, whose memory we honor today, was born and raised. It was here that Charles Lindbergh and Claire Chenault and a host of others who in World War I and World War II and Korea and even today have helped demonstrate American mastery of the skies, trained at Kelly Field and Randolph Field, which form a major part of aviation history. And in the new frontier of outer space, while headlines may be made by others in other places, history is being made every day by the men and women of the Aerospace Medical Center, without whom there could be no history. Many Americans make the mistake of assuming that space research has no values here on Earth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Just as the wartime development of radar gave us the transistor and all that it made possible, so research in space medicine holds the promise of substantial benefit to those of us who are Earth-bound. For our effort in space is not, as some have suggested, a competitor for the natural resources that we need to develop the Earth. It is a working partner and a co-producer of these resources. And nothing makes this clearer than the fact that medicine in space is going to make our lives healthier and happier here on Earth. Give me, I give you three examples. First, medical space research may open up new understanding of man's relation to his environment. Examination of the astronauts' physical and mental and emotional reactions can teach us more about the differences between normal and abnormal, about the causes and effects of disorientation in metabolism, which could result in extending the lifespan. When you study effects on our astronauts of exhaust gases, which can contaminate their environment and seek ways to alter these gases so to reduce their toxicity, you are working in problems similar to those we face in our great urban centers, which themselves are being corrupted by gases and which must be cleared. And second, medical space research may revolutionize the technology and the techniques of modern medicine. Whatever new devices are created, for example, to monitor our astronauts, to measure their heart activity, their breathing, their brain waves, their eye motion at great distances, and under difficult conditions will also represent a major advance in general medical instrumentation. Heart patients may even be able to wear a light monitor, which will sound a warning if their activity exceeds certain limits. An instrument recently developed to record automatically the impact of acceleration upon an astronaut's eyes will also be of help to small children who are suffering miserably from eye defects but are un unable to describe their impairment. And also by the use of instruments similar to those used in Project Mercury 
this nation's private as well as public nursing services are being improved, enabling one nurse now to give more critically ill patients greater attention than they ever could in the past. And third, medical space research may lead to new safeguards against hazards common to many environments. Specifically, our astronauts will need fundamentally new devices to protect them from the ill effects of radiation, which can have a profound influence upon medicine and man's relations to our present environment. Here at this center, we have the laboratories, the talent, the resources to give new impetus to vital research in the life centers. I'm not suggesting that the entire space program is justified alone by what is done in medicine. The space program stands on its own as a contribution to national strength. And last Saturday at Cape Canaveral, I saw our new Saturn C-1 rocket booster, which with its payload when it rises in December of this year, will be for the first time the largest booster in the world, carrying into space the largest payload that any country in the world has ever sent into space. That's what I consider. I think the United States should be a leader a country as rich and powerful as this, which bears so many burdens and responsibilities, which has so many opportunities, should be second to none. And in December, while I do not regard our mastery of space as anywhere near complete, while I recognize that there are still areas where we are behind, at least in one area, the size of the booster, this year, I hope, the United States will be ahead. And I'm for it. We have a long way to go, many weeks and months and years of long, tedious work lies ahead. There will be setbacks and frustrations and disappointments. There will be, as there always are, pressures on this country to do less in this area as in so many others, and temptations to do something else that's perhaps easier. But this research here must go on, this space effort must go on, the conquest of space must and will go ahead, that much we know, that much we can say with confidence and conviction. Frank O'Connor, the Irish writer, tells in one of his books, How as a Boy, he and his friends would make their way across the countryside. And when they came to an orchard wall that seemed too high and too doubtful to try, and too difficult to permit their voyage to continue, they took off their hats and tossed them over the wall, and then they had no choice but to follow them. This nation has tossed its cap over the wall of space, and we have no choice but to follow it. Whatever the difficulties, they will be overcome. Whatever the hazards, they must be guarded against. With the vital help of this Aerospace Medical Center, with the help of all those who labor in the space endeavor, with the help and support of all Americans, we will climb this wall with safety and with speed, and we shall then explore the wonders on the other side. Thank you.
After visiting San Antonio to dedicate the Aerospace Medical Health Center on November the 21st, Kennedy flew to Houston to honor a congressman who had been instrumental in the creation of the United States' space program. Now listen out for one of Kennedy's bloopers. Remarks of the President at a testimonial dinner in honor of Albert Thomas from the Sam Houston Coliseum in Houston, Texas, November 21st, 1963. Congressman. Congressman and Mrs. Thomas, Mr. Vice President, Governor Conley, Senator Yarbrough, Congressman Casey and the Congressional Delegation of Texas. Ladies and gentlemen, when I uh, came to the House of Representatives in 1947 as a fairly young congressman from Massachusetts, I heard the old saying that you spend the first six months in the House of Representatives wondering how you got there and the next six months wondering how everybody else got there. <laughs> I. Uh, spent the first six months as expected, but I must say that I never wondered how uh, Congressman Thomas got there. It's always been clear to me. When I read the report that uh, Congressman Thomas was thinking of resigning, I called him up on the phone and asked him to stay as long as I stayed. I didn't know how long that would be, but I wanted him to be, I wanted to be, I wanted him to stay. I wanted him to stay because I thought that uh, he not only represented this district with distinction, but also he served uh, the United States. His record serves his constituents, but it serves the United States. He has helped steer this country to its present eminence in space. Next month, when the United States of America fires the largest booster in the history of the world into space for the first time, giving us the lead, fires the largest payroll, payload into space, giving us the lead, it will be the largest payroll too. And, uh, who should know that better than Houston? <laughs> we put a little bit right in here. But in any case, the United States next month will have a leadership in space, which it wouldn't have without Albert Thomas. And so will this city. In 1990, the age of space will be entering its second phase. And our hopes in it to preserve the peace, to make sure that in this great new sea, as on Earth, the United States is second to none. And that's why I salute Albert Thomas and those Texans who you sent to Washington in his time and since then, who recognize the needs and the trends today in the 60s, so that when some meet here in 1990, they will look back on what we did and say that we made the right and wise decisions. He sees an America of the future in the lifetime of us all with 300 million people 
living in this country with a $2 trillion economy, which will happen in this century. Even more important, he sees in America, as do we all, strong in science and in space. The rocket that Kennedy was talking about was the Saturn 1B. The Saturn Apollo 5 mission was launched into orbit on 1964, January the 25th. Well, the next day, the 22nd of November, 1963, Kennedy was in Fort Worth, having arrived on the previous evening. At 8.45am Central Standard Time, he spoke in a square across from the hotel where he had spent the night. The President's remarks to a group in a parking lot opposite the Texas Hotel in Fort Worth, Texas, November 22, 1963. Mr. Vice President, Jim Wright, Governor, Senator Yarbrough, Mr. Barker, ladies and gentlemen, there are no faint hearts in Fort Worth, and I appreciate, I appreciate your being here this morning. I, Mrs. Kennedy is organizing herself. It takes longer, but of course she looks better than we do when she does it. But we appreciate your welcome. This city's been a great western city. The defense of the West, cattle, oil, and all the rest. It has believed in strength in this city, and strength in this state, and strength in this country. What we're trying to do in this country and what we're trying to do around the world, I believe, is quite simple. And that is to build a military structure which will defend the vital interests of the United States. And in that great cause, Fort Worth, as it did in World War II, as it did in developing the best bomber system in the world, the B-58, and as it will now do in developing the best fighter system in the world, the TFX, Fort Worth will play its proper part. And that is why we have placed so much emphasis in the last three years in building a defense system second to none. Until now, the United States is stronger than it's ever been in its history. And secondly, we believe that the new environment, space, the new sea, is also an area where the United States should be second to none. And this state of Texas and the United States is now engaged in the most concentrated effort in history to provide leadership in this area as it must here on Earth. And this is our second great effort. And next December, Next month, the United States will fire the largest booster in the history of the world, putting us ahead of the Soviet Union in that area for the first time in our history. And thirdly, thirdly, for the United States to fulfill its obligations around the world requires that the United States move forward economically, that the people of this country participate in rising prosperity and it is a fact in 1962 and the first six months of 1963, the economy of the United States grew not only faster than nearly every Western country, which had not been true in the 50s, but also grew faster than the Soviet Union itself. 
That's the kind of strength the United States needs economically, in space, militarily. And in the final analysis, that strength depends upon the willingness of the citizens of the United States to assume the burdens of leadership. I know one place where they are. Here in this rain, in Fort Worth, in Texas, in the United States, we're going forward. Thank you. And four hours later, at 12.30 p.m., Kennedy was shot. The Kennedys had flown the 18-minute flight on Air Force One from Carswell Air Force Base, Fort Worth, uh, to Love Field in Dallas. Vice President Johnson had flown into Love Field aboard Air Force Two, three minutes ahead of the President. When Apollo 11 splashed down, the folks at the Mission Control Center in Houston, Texas, paid a tribute to President Kennedy. And the flags are waving and the cigars are being lit up. And clear across the big board in front is President John F. Kennedy's uh, message to Congress of May 1961. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. That has been accomplished. And here's a tribute to Kennedy by Ry Cooter. It's simply called President Kennedy. Everybody will say We know The better president we ever had But he gone on Gone by
they don't know what's going on. Go on. His 1972 tribute to President Kennedy, that was Ry Cooder. And there we have it, the events leading up to the murder of President Kennedy 60 years ago today. This has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie, presenting for the Space Association of Australia here on Southern FM.